There is a saying that most of us know, all is fair in love and war. All is fair in love and war. I, I don't understand the first part of the saying. Don't understand how everything can be fair in love. But it seems that the latter part, all is fair in love and war, this latter part is held by many to be true. Particularly in our world, it seems that there is a mentality that drives us today. That if we are to get ahead, all things are fair. If we've got to look at life, we must look at life as a war. A fighting between us and them. And it doesn't matter if we have to break a few heads, if we have to get to the top. It doesn't matter if we've got to step on a few people, because everything in war is fair. And really, if you don't kill, you will be killed. This is a survival of the fittest. All is fair in love and war. It seems that this saying, to a large extent, permeated in Israel and Judah. That life is a war. That we've got to fight for ourselves and take what we can if we are to make progress. And to a large extent, the prophet Micah, writing towards the latter part of the 8th century BC, a contemporary of other prophets like Isaiah, that he addresses this mentality, that rapacious spirit that seeks to grab and to take at whatever cost to ourselves. Micah spoke or wrote during the 8th century, during the time when the Assyrian Empire was at its ascendancy. This is a man who experienced war. He knew war in the Syrio-Ephraimite War of 734 B.C. He was there when Tiglath-Pileser III took Judah as a vassal state. He was there when the Assyrians entered the land of Israel and took away several cities into captivity. And eventually in 722, when they came against Samaria and deported many of the Jews to Assyria. He was also there in 701 BC when the army of Sennacherib came and surrounded Jerusalem. And this prophet, as he writes brings a message of judgment against the people of Israel and Judah, and also a message of salvation. But in chapter 2, you will find that this chapter is divided into three sections, verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 11, and verses 12 and 13. In verses 1 to 5, there is a message of judgment against the avaricious and oppressive rich, the greedy rich. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds, 
At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. When you read chapter 1 and you see God's wrath revealed against Israel in the north and Judah in the south, you may begin to wonder why. Why does the Lord respond with such anger against his people? But in chapter 2, the picture becomes clearer. For whereas he speaks in general terms about the wickedness of God's people, in chapter 2 we begin to see the specifics, the actual reasons that God is incensed against his people. And here we have in verses 1 to 5, a message, an oracle of judgment. And whenever you see woe, it is always then considered an, a message, an oracle of judgment. Woe to those who devise iniquities. What the prophet sees is this mentality that the people of God had that said, we will spare no effort. We will abide by no principle. We will do whatever it takes to get ahead. And what they were doing in particular terms is that the rich were abusing those who were poor and those who had very little influence in society. And the prophet depicts their activities graphically. These are those, he says, who devise iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. So that when they went to bed at night, instead of having a good night's sleep, it was like a day in the office. And what they were doing is they were coveting the fields and properties of their neighbor and scheming and devising ways in which to take the property. And so they would plan at night on their beds. And in the morning, they would execute their plan. At morning light, they practice it. And they did it, the prophet says, because they had power in their hands. They were the rich, they were the well connected, they had the ear of the judges. They knew how to manipulate the system, how to get the things that they wanted, how to put mortgages on people's land and foreclose on them and drive them from their land. Notice in verse 2, they covet fields. And take them by violence. They evicted people from their land. Houses. They seize them. They oppress a man and his house. A man and his inheritance. When you read through the Decalogue. The Torah. When you read in the book of Leviticus for instance. You begin to see that the land that was given to Israel was a gift from God. And the land was sacrosanct. It was God's land. And it was given to families. And there was a prohibition against selling the land. That the land had to remain in the family. So that even if a man became very poor and mortgaged his land. Nobody could permanently take someone's land. And so in the year of Jubilee. In the 50th year. The land regardless of what was owed on it. Had to revert to its owner. But here they were violating the stipulation of the, of the, of the covenant. They were taking the possession, the land, and the inheritance of the people of God 
by force. Now, the prophet addresses this. In verse 3, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. One of the things that you have to recognize in chapter 2 is that there is much repetition in terms of terms. It's one of the ways of emphasizing the importance and the seriousness of the message. So in verse 2, you, you, in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, woe to those who devise iniquity, those, woe to those who plan iniquity. In verse 3, God is speaking. Behold, against this family I am devising or planning disaster. So the wicked, those who are rich, influential, powerful, they are plotting and planning evil on their beds. And while they are plotting evil, God is also plotting and planning evil against them. That's what you find in verse 3. Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. The Lord underscores that the transgression of his commandments, the injustice that has been practiced, is intolerable and unacceptable. And what you have in verse 3 then is a judicial sentence that God pronounces on the wickedness of these rich. They're going to receive their just desert. And notice what he continues to say. Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. See, just like the wicked plotted in verses 1 to 2, against the poor and the defenseless, and the poor could not escape their clutches, so the Lord plans disaster against the wicked, and they will never be able to escape the clutches of the Lord. Because here he says, from which you cannot remove your neck. Him devising disaster. And you will not be able to extricate your neck from this yoke. What is this disaster that God is devising against them? It's the forfeiture of the land. It is exile. The Assyrians are going to take them away into exile. Nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. And so he's making it very clear. That these who are taking away people's land, God is going to respond and he's going to take away the entire land in which they are. He's going to remove them from the land and give it to the Assyrians. And so they will no longer be swaggering in pride, but walking in humiliation. Just as they had wrested the land from the poor, so God is going to wrest the land out of their hands. The prophet continues in verse 4 with a dirge, a satirical dirge. He puts this cry in the mouth of the enemies of Israel. In that day, one will take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lament, lamentation saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How he, how he has removed it from me. To a turncoat, he has divided our fields. You see, he sees now the enemies of God ridiculing those in Israel who had come under the judgment of God. And they will bewail the, 
confiscation of the land and its redistribution. In verse 5, the sentence of judgment that God pronounces upon these wicked rich who abuse the poor comes to a climax. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the assembly of the Lord. It's a very pregnant and powerful verse. Because what the Lord is saying is, I am going to remove you from the land. You who are taking the land of others, I'm going to take away the entire land of Canaan and Israel from you. And more than that, you will have no place in it. When I divide up the land, you will have no boundaries. You will have no lot, no particular place in the assembly of God. These people are going to be seen as those who are outside of the covenant promises of God. And what it means is not just that they're going to forfeit the land. They're going to forfeit the greater land, which is heaven itself. Because if they are outside of the covenant people of God, they do not belong to him. But the prophet continues, not only with a message then, an oracle of judgment against the wicked rich. He pronounces a message of judgment against the false prophets who undergird and support the wealthy, the wicked rich. So we see that in verses 6 to 11. Do not prattle. And the word prattle there means simply prophesy. You say to those who prophesy. So they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. And perhaps a, a more lucid, clearer translation of verse 6 would be that found in the ESV. Do not preach, they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us, they're saying. What was happening in verse 6 is that the, the writer turns his, his, his attention now to the false prophets who are in the land. Not only does he address the wickedness of the rich who are taking away property, but now he addresses the wickedness of the false prophets. And essentially, the false prophets in verse 6 are saying to Micah and saying to those who are his contemporaries, prophets of God, don't prophesy. Do not prophesy, they said to them. What they're saying to Micah is, we don't want a negative message. We don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear that God is going to judge his people who are immoral and ungodly. Stop prophesying negative things. Stop predicting disaster. In fact, they say we don't accept the premise that there's going to be disgrace. That God is going to bring judgment upon us. You see what they're saying? Do not preach. They preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. I say, I, we don't know where you get this from, Micah. But nobody's going to be judged. Nobody's going to suffer. God will never send disgrace upon his people. The theology of the false prophets become more obvious when they say, you who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? No, these are the false prophets who are speaking. 
And they're asking the question of Micah and those who proclaim the word of God. They're asking the question, is God restricted or is God impatient? What they're saying is, Micah, you don't seem to understand God. You're pre- you are preaching that there's going to be judgment because of the evil that has been done. But you don't really know God. God is not limited in his patience. In other words, God has unlimited patience. That's the God we serve. Of course, this is the word now of the false prophets. And they argue further that this thing will not happen. Are these his doings? Is this the way God responds to his people? Does he respond in judgment? No, God is unlimited in his patience. He doesn't do these things. And then in verse 7, God responds. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? So they are saying that God does not judge iniquity. These things are not going to happen. But God responds and asks the question. It's a rhetorical question. Essentially saying, if you walk uprightly, will you not receive good? Will I not pronounce good upon you? And clearly the Lord is saying that he judges those who walk ungodly, but he blesses those who walk uprightly. You see, these false teachers essentially believed in the description of God in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. A passage that extols the graciousness of the character of God. When God passed before Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. They believe that God was a merciful God and his mercy extends to generation. But what they seem to forget is that verse 7 continued. There's a second part to verse 7, which says, God by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the children's children to the third generation and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. You see, God is a God whose patience is not limitless, but he judges ungodliness. And so the Lord answers them, do not my word Words do good to him who walk uprightly. Do not not do good to the person who walks in a manner that pleases me. In verses 8 to 10, there is a rehearsal of the sins that these wicked men were committing and the prophets were condoning. So the prophet says, Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You see, they believe that life is war. And whereas the ordinary Israelite would think we are in our own land and our borders are secure, we have nothing to fear, the Lord says that the rich have risen up as an enemy. And they are an enemy of their own people. And now the Lord says, this is what you do. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you. They're taking a man's cloak. It's... An expensive cloak. They're taking away the fellow's cloak because they want to have it. But why should you have a, uh, such an expensive cloak when I don't have one or when I need to have that? So he takes it. And what did they do? Furthermore, we see in verse 9, 
like men returned from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant or luxurious homes. These women may have inherited property from their husbands who had died. And the properties that they inherited was the inheritance of their children. But these rich were turning these women out of their homes and taking away the children's inheritance. You have taken away my glory, the inheritance that was given to them. Now look at what happens in verse 10. These rich were acting unjustly to the people of God. And notice, they had risen up. And so because they had risen up against the people of God, God speaks to them and he says to them, rise up. But rise up and depart. Because essentially you are going to leave this land. In this land is no rest. You have no rest in this land. You have defiled it. And therefore it shall be destroyed. Yes, with utter destruction. And so the Lord is saying is, you rose up against people. You robbed them. I'm going to make you rise up and depart from this land because you have defiled the land with your wickedness. And in verse 11, you see the Lord's statement on false prophets. You notice that Verses 6 and 11 is bracketed with God's statement to the false prophets. And that's why you, when you look at this passage, you will see that the governing idea here is God's rebuke and judgment of the false prophets. In verse 11, if a man should walk in a false spirit, that means he's a false prophet, and speak a lie saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, meaning of abundance and wealth and prosperity. Even he would be the prattler of these people. What is he saying? He's saying these people, these wicked people who go around taking away what is not their own, they rejoice in these false prophets. They, they don't want prophets like Micah who's going to rebuke them. They want prophets who are going to prophesy of wine and drink. Who's going to tell them about abundance and wealth? These are the kind of prophets they heap to themselves. And, and thus the implication is the only reason that they are able to take away the land of the poor. It is because they have behind them false prophets prophesying, saying, you have a right to it. You should have wine and drink. You should have abundant blessings. And so there is a message then of judgment brought against not only the rich but the false prophets who encourage them in their ways but in this dark passage of judgment upon not only the avaricious rich and the false prophets who support them there comes in verse 12 and 13 a ray of hope for there is a movement now away from the oracle of judgment to a proclamation of salvation. In the midst of this very dark passage, you hear the words of the Lord. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. And Jacob refers to the remnant, the people of God. 
and I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. And I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. And the one who breaks open will come up before them. And they will break out and pass through the gate and go out by it. And their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Many, when the commentators read this, these two verses, argue that they do not belong to Micah's prophecy. That they were words given later and were attached to this prophecy by a radiactor, by a scribe or some person who placed it here, but it doesn't belong. And there is a sense in which it is, in fact, a massive shift in the tone and texture of the text. But that idea that this is now an appendage added on by somebody else must be rejected. The entire book of Micah is one that goes oscillate between judgment and blessing, between God's cursing and God's blessing, between judgment and salvation. You see this back and forth throughout this book. What you have here, then, is a promise that God will gather and protect his people. So that even though there are wicked men roaming the land, doing wicked things to God's people, and even though there are false prophets prophesying things that are wrong, that the Lord has his people under his control. And that he will be their deliverer. Notice that these two verses portray the Lord Jesus Christ as the shepherd and king of his people. It is the Lord who will assemble his people. It is the Lord who will gather them. And listen, he will assemble all of them. It means, therefore, that this king, this shepherd, will bring his people under his protective care. And he'll bring all of them under his protection. It's, it speaks then of the certainty of salvation. It is the first person that is being used. I, it is the divine determination. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. You see, God has spoken. I will be a shepherd to my people. I will gather them. Even though injustice abounds, I will be the shepherd of my people. You see, this is a marvelous image of God that in the midst of wickedness, we have a shepherd who is tender and compassionate, who cares for his sheep. You see, God views his people as his sheep. <laughs> Over the years, you have heard the argument that Perhaps we are compared to sheep because we are not very bright. Anybody who knows sheep know that they are not the most sensible of animals. In fact, they are very dumb. And the reason we are called sheep is not because we are dumb. The reason we are called sheep is because we are often defenseless. The forces arrayed against us in this world. That we by ourselves are no match for them. But God is the shepherd. And this is a notion, this is an image of God's tenderness and his compassion. The one who is gentle with his people, who leads them to the verdant pastures. So 
So God speaks to his people, I will surely assemble all of you. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. God will gather them. God will protect them. None will be missing. And not only will God gather them, God will bring them out. In verse 13, we have the description of God. The one who breaks open will come up before them. The one who breaks open, who's that? It's God. The the language here of breaking open, we, we saw that earlier, at least those of you who have been with us for some time. We saw that in 2 Samuel 20. In 2 Samuel 5, sorry, verse 20, when God broke out against the nations. And David viewed him as the Lord. He's the Lord Perizim, the God of breakthroughs. The God who broke out against the nations who came against David. And God was known as the Lord Perizim, the God who breaks through this Same word, Perez, to break through, is used here. You see, God will gather his people and God will lead them, but God will break out against their enemies. Now, there are commentators who believe that what is the historical reference here is, of course, Sennacherib's attack against Jerusalem. The children of God were gathered in Jerusalem and Sennacherib invaded the land and surrounded them, and God broke through against him. So that he had to flee and return to his country where he was killed by one of his sons. But God is the one who breaks through. He's the one, he's the God of the breaches. And he's the one who defends his people. He's the one who breaks through against the enemy. And he's the one who goes ahead and leads them to verdant pastures. And so we have in the midst then of this dire prophecy of judgment against wicked men and wicked prophets that God will preserve, God will protect, and God will fight for his people, and he will lead them on. I believe that this word, spoken centuries before the birth of Jesus, still has validity for us today. One of the things that you must, as you read this passage, conclude is that the passage warns us that we are not to allow our lives to be dominated by the pursuit of material wealth. You see, in Micah's day, many had made mammon their God. Money was their God. They lived and breathed for it. They would kill for it, it seems. It doesn't matter which old lady they would trample upon. It doesn't matter which child they would deprive of an inheritance. All that mattered was that they continued to have larger and bigger bank accounts. And God took note. You and I need to know that we ought never to live for things. Jesus in his day said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24. 
In fact, scripture considers this insatiable desire for things which it calls covetousness. The Bible considers the love of things and material things as idolatry. And therefore, Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which, he says, is idolatry. We must not live for money. We must not use dishonest gains to enrich ourselves. If God blesses us with, that, with things, we ought to be thankful. God has given us all things to enjoy. We are to use it for the promotion of his glory and for the benefit of others. But we must never set our hearts on uncertain riches. What the Bible calls us to do is to live contented. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 10. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we will carry nothing out. When we die, we can't take our houses and we can't take our bank accounts with us. You know, the Amerindians were quite strange. When we were in high school, we learned that when a chief died, they would bury him with food and with money and also buried him with his living wife because they presumed that he was going into the netherworld, the underworld, he needed food. If he was going to survive it, he needed money to pay his way through. And of course, he needed his wife to take care of him. So they buried them all together. When we die, we take nothing with us. And so the writer says, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I know that there are many people who like to quote this verse, the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible never said that. What he says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. There are all kinds of evils that are not related to money. So we mustn't say that money is the cause of all problems in the world. That's not true. But it does cause all kinds of evil. And he says, For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We aren't not to live for money. We aren't to be a part of the rat race that will do anything it takes to get ahead. What we are to pursue is this. Paul says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. Why? Why is it that we are called upon to pursue the virtues of Christ, the character of Christ? It is because if we seek to make material things our search and pursuit in life, we will be left with nothing. These rich who would do whatever it took to wrest money and property from the poor ended up with nothing because they were taken into exile. And if you live simply 
to promote yourself simply for the material, one day you will forfeit not only the money for which you live, but you will forfeit heaven itself. You see, dear friends, what is at stake in all of life is not that we get ahead, but that we get to heaven. And everything you and I do, every choice we make, every path we pursue must be governed by this controlling purpose that I make it to heaven. Because if you are listed in Forbes as one of the richest men or women in the world, one day that riches will dissipate when Jesus comes and all things are burnt up. But that you make it to glory is the greatest of treasures. You see, the writer tells us, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You see, these who were wicked and greedy, they lost their place in the assembly of God. You and I are striving to be a part of the assembly of God, the church of the firstborn. Amen. And nothing in this world must come before that, not even the love of money or things in this life. So the text is a warning not to make an idol of things because we will be left with nothing and forfeit the assembly of God's people. But you and I must also consider, as you read a text like this, that we are instructed to commit ourselves to God's truth and to settle for nothing else. You know, false, prop, uh, false prophets have always been the consternation of God's people throughout the ages. Even Moses recognized in his own day that there was a problem of false prophets. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 13, he gives them a litmus test by which they are able to determine who speaks for God and who does not? And the prophet who prophesies and his prophecy does not come true, he is a false prophet. Moses was concerned about false prophecy. There were false prophets and false teachers in the days of the apostles. And Paul, in writing to Timothy, speaks often about these. False prophets flourished in the times of Micah. They flourished in the days of the apostles, and they flourish today. Some of these false prophets and false teachers are in the world. They walk in the halls of academia. They're teaching in our universities and colleges. They deny the existence of God. They believe that this world is an accident. They teach us that we do not need God to regulate our lives, to determine morality for us. In fact, they believe in perhaps this ancient word, vox populi, vox di. The voice of the people is the voice of God. If we as a society determine what is right, then that is right. If we believe that abortion is right, we don't need anyone to tell us it is wrong. You see, the voice of the people is the voice of God. We determine morality. And we have these false prophets today educating our children, disseminating their messages through the media, teaching us 
and filling our ears with false doctrine. But we also have false teachers within the umbrella of the church. These do not deny the existence of God because it would be very hard for them to survive. They're much more subtle. You know, it's hard for a false prophet to say, you know what, I'm speaking on God's behalf, and by the way, God does not exist. So, they're much more subtle than that. What they're trying to say is, we have to have new ways of looking at God. The view of God as a judge and judging people is just to one kind. We don't need to talk about that. What we need to talk about is love and the love of God. And on their guitar, they have one string. And they play it ad nauseum. They insist upon the love of God to the exclusion of the righteousness and the justice of God. And because of their insistence that God does not lose patience, that God does not judge, it provides a cover for many to live in immorality. We have churches in the city that you can attend and live the way you want. You can be a homosexual and go to church because it is an environment that accepts that lifestyle. Now, I say to people, this church welcomes all sinners. It doesn't matter whether a man considers himself a transgender or a homosexual, a liar or a thief. All of us are sinners and we're welcome to grace. But nobody can be a part of the church and continue in rebellion and sin. Because God is a righteous God. These are not our opinions. These are God's revelation. And you know, at the end of the day, I rather displease men and please God. Because I have one judge before whom I shall stand. And all of us who are preachers and teachers of the word must know this. That we are to fear God and not fear men. Because they can kill the body, but God is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, we live in a day and age where false teachers are misrepresenting the character of God. God is love. And thanks be to God that he loves. It is a marvelous truth that God is gracious and kind. Because we would not exist if he were not for a merciful God. There is a God who, though he's merciful and gracious, is righteous and just. Who determines right and wrong. And he will never confuse that. He will never blur the boundaries. You see, it's a good thing, you know. It's a good thing to go to bed and know that lying tonight is wrong. And get up tomorrow morning and knowing it's still wrong in God's books. Doesn't change his mind. He's consistent in his being and character. You see, these false prophets were not only misrepresenting the character of God, they were misrepresenting the message of God. They were preaching to people wine and drink. You know, we, we hear people talking about the prosperity gospel today. Well, we didn't, you know, these folks today did not invent the prosperity gospel. It has been going on for a long time. There are people today who will tell you that God's real intent is for you to have your best life now. 
God's goal for you is to be happy and wealthy. But that's not what the Bible says. This is not what the scriptures tell us. Fear God and keep his commandment. For that is the whole duty of man. The Bible does not teach us that God is there for our comfort and for our happiness. We are taught that we are to live for the glory of God. We are there for him. The true message of the Bible is that we must live for the honor and glory of God. And you and I must do all we can to pursue truth. We must seek the truth. We must pursue it. We must bind it upon our hearts. And we must only seek those who proclaim the truth of God's word. Listen, my friends, your theology has a direct impact on how you live. If you have a wishy-washy, mamby-pamby God, you're going to live a wishy-washy, mamby-pamby life. If you have a God who stands for nothing, you are also going to stand for nothing. You see, your theology determines how you live. It means that you are to then court only those who proclaim the truth. And pursue the truth wherever it lives. That you do not heap to yourselves those who merely itch your ears. And speak fables, but those who proclaim the word of God. But I want to conclude by reminding you of this. That in a world of great evil and discouragement, you must take great consolation. Because you have a great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. It is easy to survey the world and its evil. You see, multinational corporations simply for profit will destroy lives. Banks who will force people into foreclosure. And you see great evil and injustice and inequity in society. You, you become discouraged. You see the rich prospering and the poor getting worse in poverty. And you begin to think that there is no justice. You hear continually the false teachings around you. And you become even more discouraged. But Micah reminds us that we have a great shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are his sheep. We are his sheep by election because we were given to him by God. We are his sheep by redemption because he bore us with his blood. And we are his sheep by conquest because he overpowered us with love and grace. And he will protect us and guard us. That we have one who is our shepherd. Who is the Lord of the breakthroughs. He breaks through the barrier and the shackles of sin that encircle us. He breaks through the plans of the devil. That is why the apostle Paul could say. And the Lord will deliver me. From every evil work. And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. You see we have one. Who breaks barriers. Who shatters. Confinement. One who delivers us. He's our shepherd. He breaks our sins. He breaks the plan of the devil. And he leads us on not to Canaan. But to a heavenly land. Amen. And this savior. In the midst of life's difficulties and challenges. And inequities we may trust him. Because through it all. Jesus leads us on. Amen. We may not know where he leads us. We may not know how he leads us. But listen my friends. You have one who goes ahead of you. 
tearing down strongholds, removing barriers, and leading you in a straight path to glory. You have a leader in Jesus Christ, whom you must trust. You are his sheep. He is your shepherd. He will lead you into glory. May God help you to look to him for Jesus' sake. Amen.